This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've just consistently put out content. Not all of it went viral. Some of it was a total dud. Some of it went exceptionally viral. You know, some of it was kind of in the middle, but I just was there and I was constantly putting out things and constantly putting out things that I was proud of. I wasn't just putting out garbage. I was like really spending time on it. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. One of the fastest growing creators that I've seen over the last few years is Sawhill Bloom. Sawhill is a writer, an investor, and a podcaster who first built his following on Twitter. If you go back to August of 2020, Sawhill had about 14,000 followers on Twitter. But today, in September of 2022, he is just a hair shy of 700,000. And over the last 12 months, he's added about 50,000 new followers per month. Now, Sawhill wasn't always a creator. His background is actually in finance. And he says that his journey into becoming a creator probably isn't a lot different than yours. My journey to creating and writing on the internet is... I think probably similar to a lot of other people that you see out there today, which is I sort of had the like 1.0 janky version before the version that everyone knows about and and has seen. And for me, that was like this newsletter that I sent out. I don't even know if newsletter is the right way to say it, that I would send out to like originally just a few family and friends. And then the new version of what I'm actually doing really started um, when COVID hit. When COVID-19 hit in 2020, Sahil turned his attention from writing a newsletter to writing more publicly on Twitter. You know, I was working in an institutional finance job that was 80, 90 hours a week and COVID hits and all of a sudden I'm not traveling four days a week and I'm not having to work those long hours. I don't have to commute. And so I had a lot of time and I was trying to think like I'm stuck at home. I don't really have a social life right now. Um, What am I going to do? And I realized, oh, I really love writing. I'm already doing this other thing with that kind of reading newsletter. Why don't I just figure out another kind of place where I can write and like distill my thoughts and really find that clarity of thought that for me comes from writing. Fast forward to today, and on the back of his strong Twitter following, Sawhill has been able to branch into other platforms. His newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle, has 118,000 subscribers. He's begun writing on LinkedIn, where he has more than 70,000 subscribers. He's publishing a podcast called The Room Where It Happens, and he still makes independent investments through his own firm. But despite all of that, Sawhill says his secret weapon isn't talent, it's just hard work. I've always just thought I'm not going to be the most talented. I'm not going to be the most gifted around any of these things. 
but I'm just going to keep showing up. It was the same way for me with baseball. I wasn't particularly gifted baseball wise, but I knew that people would have a really tough time beating me if I just kept coming at them over and over and over again, like in a game or in practices or whatever it was, people were going to have a really tough time competing against me for that reason. And so I always thought about that with anything I was doing work-wise and it applied to the content creation as well. So in this episode, we talk about Sahil's rocket ship Twitter growth, how he attracts the support of others, how he's changed his strategy as he's grown, and why all of his success is a result of simply being consistent. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me. Let me know that you're listening. If you're here on YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have, go ahead, leave a comment down below. That's enough of me. Let's dive in. Let's talk to Sahil. I started using Twitter. I had it in 2011. I was playing baseball in college, and so I used to use it to like tweet when we had a big game or whatever it was, you know, kind of standard stuff of early Twitter days. And I had used it to like look at news and found it useful for those things. And when COVID hit, I was using it to like see what was happening in the markets and FinTwit. And I was kind of going down that rabbit hole, but no one was really writing threads yet. Like that longer form content on Twitter had not really become a thing yet. Twitter hadn't created the tools to actually empower people to do it either. You had to, if you were going to write longer form on Twitter, you had to actually comment after posting under each one of your tweets. There was not actually functionality built out around it. So I didn't really have like a model where I pointed to and said, oh, that's the person that I want to model this after and be like, my whole perspective was like, how do I create value for people with what I'm putting out? And for me, that was trying to abstract complexity around the things that were happening in business and finance. And I just figured I have all these friends, you know, really from my baseball background, I have all these friends who are not in finance and who are smart, but have no idea what's going on and have no understanding of it. And they're not going to understand all the jargon and you know complex terms that experts are using, quote unquote. So what if I can just demystify that and kind of strip away all that complexity and deliver something really simple and intuitive and digestible? And that's really what I started doing. But it was really with value creation in mind rather mm-hmm. than like growth and kind of pattern matching in mind. Well, to your credit, I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to on this show who talk about Twitter and and how impactful threads have been for them, they all bring up your name. It seems like you were one of the early innovators in using that style of writing on Twitter, which is a style of innovation that I think a lot of creators can learn from because any platform is changing constantly and trends come and go and ways of using it come and go. But somebody has to be on the front end kind of innovating or being one of the innovators in how to use that tool differently. How do you think about that now when it comes to Twitter? Are you doing anything or trying anything different right now? I definitely think with all of these things, it's a market function, right? Like in the early days, there were outsized rewards to people that were out in front of doing this because you had, you know, an environment where not that many people were creating longer form content. The algorithm, you know, people say what they want about it, prioritizing long form content, whatever, like clearly people, it was resonating with them as a format and it hadn't proliferated all over Twitter yet. So I was one of the few people doing it early on and then doing it consistently. I might've been one of the only people within the categories. And so it really stood out. Like if I, if you were writing about cognitive biases in 
late 2020 in longer form on Twitter, you were an N of, you know, there was sub five people probably. It might have been like me, Shane Parrish. Yeah, there were a couple people. Now there's probably 500 people that are writing the same threads on that topic. And so obviously like, you know, when you when you just think about it from a market dynamic standpoint, the, the upside to doing that is just lower because there's so much competition in doing it. You need to find new ways to innovate and stand out. And so, you know, I, I don't, try to be or pretend to be prescriptive about like where the future is going around all of these things. But the reality is you need to find a way for your content and the value you're creating to be interesting and unique relative to other people. Yeah, it's been on my mind recently because not even just Twitter, but a lot of content platforms, it seems like engagement is dipping for the things that have been working, at least to a relative degree. Have you have you experienced that or noticed that? I haven't. Personally, I mean, I I, um, I think like it, it's it's a scale effect. Obviously, you know, I, I've kind of benefited from achieving a level of scale where I, I've kind of gotten away from like being in the I don't know what I would consider that kind of range, but you know, in the in the range of like sub. 25,000 followers or something where it's like you're really battling it out every day to like actually just get your content seen. And so I, I'm sure there is a challenge right now of kind of breaking through that and like busting through the the kind of the cold start effect during that period because there's just a lot of people doing it. And so I do think people need to figure out how to stand out more. I mean, there was a period in time, which you probably remember, where like you could, and it became a meme, like you could summarize a Wikipedia article on someone, you know, write a story about Steve Jobs and you could get 10,000 likes and like no one was doing that. Then everyone saw that and a million people did that. Now, if you go do that, the returns are minimal unless you're providing some like really unique insight. And so my whole razor for this is, you have to look at it with a standard of like, what is the unique angle or perspective that I'm really bringing to this piece of content that isn't just what everyone else can do? Whether you're starting out or whether you're later on, I think that's what you need to think about is like, what am I really trying to get across that is different from what other people can? Like, what is my unique mm -hmm. lens that I'm going to look at this same piece of content through? Yeah, there are, there are layers of innovation. This is, I'm thinking out loud here, but you know, I was thinking about platform innovation and the way you use the tool but there's storytelling innovation. There's like the the type of content that you do, you know, talking about the summarizing a, a bio on Wikipedia. That's not necessarily using Twitter the tool differently. It's it's thinking about a different angle on content. So there are mm -hmm. layers of innovation that you can take on all these platforms. That's that's a good thought provoking sure. nudge there. So you start writing on Twitter. You say, I got this time on my hands with with uh, the pandemic, and you're starting to do it. When did you start to take it even more seriously, and why? So I wrote my first thread May of 2020, had 500 followers at the time. By about like July or August, I think I had ticked up to like 4,000 or 5,000. And I remember like calling my dad when I hit 5,000 and being like, dad, I'm famous. Uh, there's 5,000 people that care about what I say enough to follow me. And like, you know, relative to, I had actually had a big Instagram account a few years prior, like around like travel pictures and things, fun things my wife and I were doing. And I deleted my Instagram because I got sick of it and found it to be like kind of toxic for my, uh, huh. for my mental state. And at the time, I think I must have had like 25,000 followers on Instagram, something like that. But I remember thinking like 5,000 people on Twitter is actually much more powerful than 25,000 on Instagram because it's people that actually are following you for your ideas and your thoughts, which is like just a generally really deep connection and, and deep commitment that they're making. And so I remember like that was the first time when I pulled back 
back and said, wow, there's really something to this and I'm creating something here. And then it started to like build and accelerate. And I had a few people that supported me and at a time when like they really didn't need to. Raul Paul is this kind of financial investor, financial writer, he's the founder of Real Vision, like tweeted out something really nice telling people to follow me. And I got like 8,000 followers from that. This guy, Scott Milker, who's within the crypto world, did the same and got a ton from that. And so I got these boosts from people that honestly didn't need to support me along the way that started to just build. And, you know, by the end of that year, I think I was like at around 75,000 followers or something. And that was when I really started to think, like, hmm, maybe there's actually something to this beyond just, you know, a thing that I'm doing in a couple hours on the weekend. Let's dig into those those boosts and those those acts of kindness those people gave you. Sure, they didn't have to do that, but they were compelled to do that. Why do you think people are compelled to do things like that? I think when you're putting genuine energy and positive energy out into the world, people want to help you and support you. And this is like sort of a flowery thing that I say, and I think a lot of people I roll out, but I really do believe it. If you have genuine positive sum intentions in the actions that you're taking, I think a lot of people end up wanting to help you. And my life, at least, has been a case study in that, where I just feel like at every turn, I generally just try to help people. And I try to, you know, be positive some and a a positive some thinker and, and, and support others along the way. And now I, you know, try to support people that are starting or coming up and, and, and do things like that. And I think it attracts the best quality people to you when you act that way. And that's what I found. And and it's what I see in, you know, people that are up and coming too. this guy, Blake Burge, who's become a close friend of mine. You know, he was just starting out. I was probably at like a couple hundred thousand followers at the time. And I just started helping him because I was like, oh, I'm going to pay it forward in the same way that these guys helped me. And so I started helping him. And now I think he's at like, you know, 300,000 plus followers and has built like a real niche as like the Excel guy on Twitter. It's very cool to see. And so I, I tend to think that that is the recipe is like, if you just continue to put forth good natured, positive, some energy into the world, you attract those type of people to you and you end up benefiting from it in the long run. How much focus do you put on cultivating relationships versus hoping that your content attracts the type of people that you would want to cultivate relationships with, if that makes sense? I think of all of this stuff as like idea magnets. Like you're sort of just casting out this web of magnets into the world that naturally, if they get seen, are going to attract people, attract certain people and repel others, right? So like if you're putting out a bunch of negative content to the world, you're going to attract other negative people probably. If you're putting out like fear, negativity, et cetera, you're going to attract a lot of people that want that. Similarly, if you're putting out things that are positive and growth oriented, you're going to attract a lot of people that want that type of thing and that think that way. And you're probably going to repel people that are cynical and don't want that. And I certainly see some of that. When I put things out, you get the people that are like eye rolling or tell you you're an idiot or whatever it is. And that's fine with me because that's a good trade. Like I'll take the attraction of the positive people any day of the week. But I I don't know. I mean, I, I think of that as an important feature, but none of this just happens on its own. So to your point on like, do you need to cultivate the that? I absolutely think you need to cultivate and you need to make a practice out of it. I've always had this practice of like every single week, try to make one new friend and try to catch up with one old friend. And, you know, you don't always hit it. It's not like a check mark that I put on a box, but if you follow that as a general practice, good things tend to happen. Like making one new friend, really what I mean by that is like talk to a stranger, you know, yeah. talk to someone. It could be an Uber driver. Like you have a conversation with a, an Uber driver and learn something new about their life or, you know, something that's a pain point for them. You might come up with a business idea. You might come up with something to write about that you want to learn more about, et cetera. And so I do think, I mean, I think it's a combination. You need to, you know, put things out there. I think that expands your luck surface area, like expands the aperture of your life to have cool things happen to you. And then you need to go deeper on things. It's like building a T-shaped, you know, kind of atmosphere in life. 
After a quick break, Sahil and I talk about what he believes helped him to grow so quickly. And later, we dig into his creative process. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full-time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Sahil Bloom. Sahil says that after about a year of taking Twitter seriously, he was at 75,000 followers. So I asked him in retrospect what he thinks he did well and what he might do differently if you were starting over today. I mean, consistency uh, would be the number one thing that I did that I did right. You know, from the time that I posted my first thing, May of 2020, it's now been, um, what is that, 26-ish months. I have written at least one piece of long-form content on Twitter every single week. You know, I think 
now I'm at 225 threads or something posted on Twitter. I have like a mega thread that has all of them in there. I've just consistently put out content. Not all of it went viral. Some of it was a total dud. Some of it went exceptionally viral. You know, some of it was kind of in the middle, but I just was there and I was constantly putting out things and constantly putting out things that I was proud of. I wasn't just putting out garbage. I was like really spending time on it and thinking about it. And if I wasn't proud of something, I would wait and, you know, put in more work and put put something out that I was. But the other thing that I think I did was was just like identifying um, needs and value that I could create. And, you know, was pretty smart about that in the early days, as we discussed. And then over time, being thoughtful about expanding outside of my kind of core of what I had created. I think a lot of people find like this stalling effect. You sort of, you start within a niche and you, you know, you, you do really well within it. But then all of a sudden you find that like, okay, you've kind of tapped out that niche and there's not much more growth. And for me, it was like, I was looking and seeing, okay, on FinTwit or whatever it was, like the core finance people, people were really maxing out around 100K at the time. Like it was hard to grow after that because there aren't that many people that like deeply, deeply care about like niche finance stuff. So I started thinking like, well, what else am I really interested in writing about? And what in my long term do I really want to be talking about? Like what am I energized about on a daily basis? Not what I think other people will be. Because I think I heard this from like Morgan Housel. You have to write about things that you're going to be excited to write about. And when you do that, there's likely other people that are excited about those. For me, that was like personal development, growth, productivity. Those were the things I was thinking about a lot every day. And so writing about them, that expanded my like, you know, it's expanded my TAM, like my potential market significantly. Flipping to the other side of your question of like, what did I not do that well? I think in the early days, especially, I was not structured in how I approached all of this because it really was like this fly by night thing I was just doing on the weekends. I mean, I had an 80 hour a week day job. Um, and so I was trying to balance this. I didn't have any sort of like, you know, thought process around here are the pillars of the things I'm writing about. Here's how I'm going to go about it. Here's like the structure of how I'm going to write. I didn't think about how do I write more effectively? Like what worked with that piece? What didn't work? Cultivate feedback from people. I didn't really start taking it seriously in that way and like thinking like a professional, like a professional mindset around it really until about a year in. And what changed when that happened? What types of structure did you put in place? A lot changed. I mean, the whole thing became, you know, suddenly like it flipped from being a little side hobby into something that I could build my whole life around. You know, multiple businesses launched alongside it. Um, the newsletter started to scale and became a prop, you know, a, a nicely profitable business. A podcast was launched. You know, I just started to see the big picture. Like it, it allowed me to zoom out and really see the full forest of what I could create rather than just like, here's this one thing I'm going to write this week. You know, structurally, what, it, what was it? I mean, I like basically created a central nervous system for all my content stuff. And I used Notion, but you could use anything. And it was like, you know, I say central nervous system because it allows me to like zoom out and see the bigger picture of what am I creating? When am I creating it? How do the things tie together in a way that's logical so that it's not just, you know, haphazard and, you know, and really just be thoughtful about it in the way that you would be if you were running a business. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Also, I hired someone to help me drop my ideal workflows into notion it's just this beautiful thing now but i'm starting to think myself like how do i what how, how does this all stack into what and it sounds like you're kind of describing a similar process so when you zoom out on your central nervous system and you're thinking about how this all acts in concert what does that look like are you are you thinking about like hey month by month this is what i'm building towards or i have some big goals for the whole year how does that look at a zoomed out level i only recently have like a plan that goes out beyond a month from today, which is like a big step 
forward for me. Um, <laughs> I find it very, very difficult to plan in advance, especially with the way the internet works, because uh, we're really bad at understanding exponential growth and understanding trends just in general as humans. And so when you try to plan too far out in advance, you end up just being wrong. And um, you get this like plan continuation bias where you want to stick to a plan, even though it's not the right plan mm. anymore. And so I generally find that it's better to like um, have it like two, three, four weeks out in advance and then be able to adapt and and very quickly iterate on things, change systems, et cetera. So I try to have a general idea of the things I'm going to be writing and talking about for a period. I do a much better job of like teasing and testing ideas and then doubling down on the things that I think are really interesting and that work and that resonate with people. But that's about it. I, I don't have like, you would never find a content calendar from me that like goes out to the end of this year about the only thing that I have you know, out to the end of this year is like the team that does my newsletter sponsorships. I think that that's handled. But other than that, all of it is like, and even them, it make it stresses me out when I look at their calendar because I see, you know, newsletters that are booked and someone has paid for a slot. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to write about on December 14th, 2022. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy to me. But I, I mostly write, and people think this is crazy, I mostly write in real time. Like the threads I know, I normally will post one thread a week and it's on Saturday mornings usually. The reason I post it on Saturday mornings is because I write on Saturday morning. And so I like, you know, I, I sit down that's when I tend to have time um, because of all the other business stuff I have going on and I'll sit down and I'll write and then I'll post it. And I normally know what I'm going to write about in a given week. Sometimes I don't and I just decide, you know, like where is the energy taking me around these things? What else have I been talking about? What ideas have been percolating and coming together to do that? This is something I talk to a lot of creators about as a struggle of theirs because they'll operate on kind of a similar schedule, but they get closer and closer to the publish date and it almost feels like white knuckling this thing that you have to create. There's like, what am I going to do? And it yeah. becomes like increasingly urgent and scary. Do you think that's a skill that's kind of innate to certain personality types to be able to do that? Do you think it's like your athletic background? What allows you to be on schedule like that and kind of create on short term timeframes and still make something that you're proud of? I think everyone needs to find what works for them. I've had this conversation with Packy McCormick and Mario Gabriel, who are both, you know, pretty prolific newsletter writers who both write like, you know, 10,000 plus word tome newsletters weekly. And it's always amazed me because that's like baffling amounts of Huge. content creation and really deep and it's absurd. And they have very different creation styles. One of them will not know what he's going to write about. Like Packy won't know what he's going to write about until the weekend for a Monday piece. And then Crazy. he'll decide and he'll sit down and write. Mario knows like months in advance and plans it and does this deep research, et cetera. And it's just like your personality type, right? I mean, they're just, they do the same type of output, but it's very different, the style that they do it. For me, I just have a tough time um, writing in an inspired way if it's planned. Like if you told me, oh, Sahil, you're so, like right now, I'm, I'm really interested in the, in the general topic of wealth. I'm going to eventually write a book on this, um, but I, I'm generally just like really, really fired up, passionate, reading a ton, interested in just like developing a more comprehensive view of wealth. And if you told me like, oh, okay, so in a few months on your calendar, it says you're going to write about that this week, I'd be like, well, shit, you know, excuse my language. You know, I, I, I want to write about it now. Like I'm super excited to write about this right now. And so if I had a calendar that told me it wasn't going to be until then, and I had something else that I was supposed to be slotted in that I'm not excited about, that would be silly to me. Cause all of a sudden I'd write down, I'd sit, I'd go to write the other piece, whatever it was telling me I was supposed to do. And I wouldn't be excited about it. And that comes across when you go write it. Mm -hmm. You're just like, 
you know, it's lazy writing. It's like, uh, it's, it's work at that point. And so for me, keeping it from feeling like work means writing when I'm inspired to write about these things. And I'm good at like, to your point, I have an athlete's mindset around these things. If I need to sit down and just grind something out, that's probably happened to me like, you know, 5% of the time, I probably have to do that 10% of the time. You know, the week my, my son was born, I was super tired because we'd been in the hospital and I was like, I'm getting my two newsletters out this week. It doesn't matter. My kid was born on a Monday. The Wednesday I had to get a newsletter out. I was like, I'm getting that newsletter out. It doesn't matter. I'm going to figure out a way to do it because like, I want to be able to look back and say, I never missed a week. Um, I was doing it and I was going to stick to it. But like, sometimes you just need to grind it out. So I, I think it's like a combination of finding your style and then just sticking to it. You know, you mentioned earlier that you, you used to be kind of into like the hustle culture thing and you don't feel the same way about it now. To be honest, a lot of creators that I talk to on the show who have kind of made it and are on the other side, like they they spent some time in like a phase like that, at least, you know, because there is something to the work's got to get done, you know, like the work's got to get done and it's you doing it. And <laughs> sometimes it's not like easy or sexy or like, you have all this time. Sometimes it takes that hustle. And I don't think that we're necessarily doing a service to creators coming up today to say like, no, hustle culture, like there's nothing to it. Because I think there's there's something there. Interested to hear your thoughts now on the other side of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, right? I've written about this for sure that I think there's just nuance to these things. Like it's become a meme to say, oh, hard work is overrated. You don't need to work hard. You need to work smart. It's just not true. And I think it's, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it does a disservice. I, I think you can probably get like 80-ish percent of the way there by either working hard or smart. Like you can grind your way on, you know, on the hard work side, or you can kind of like, you know, work smart your way to like 80% of the way there. But if you really want to accomplish something great and meaningful, which not everyone does want to do, by the way, like if you don't feel like you need to accomplish something incredible to be happy, I don't think you should, work your ass off to try to do that just because society tells you that. I actually think you should figure out what makes you happy and fulfilled. And that's great if you can be really happy. But if you want to accomplish great things, you have to work hard, like full full stop. I just don't believe it's possible. And you're going to have to grind things out. I mean, I don't know a single example of someone who has like worked smart, not hard and achieved, you know, 1% like outcomes. In your experience, because your audience is a factor of multitudes bigger than mine. Was there a point of like almost escape velocity? Was there like a threshold that you reached where it felt like it was kind of building upon itself and your input became simpler? No, (laughs) unfortunately, I always thought there would be at every step along the way. I was like, oh, you know, when I was at 5,000, I was like, man, I'm going to hit 10,000. My, you know, Twitter thing is going to have the K, like it's going to say 10.1K or 10K. And all of a sudden followers are just going to flock in because they're (laughs) going to look at me and they're going to say like, damn, that guy's legit. I'm going to follow him. Didn't happen. Then I thought, okay, maybe that happens at 100K. Didn't happen. Then I thought, okay, maybe it happens when I get the verified badge. People are going to like really flock to me and my, my, you know, net follower count is really going to accelerate didn't happen. I mean, I've literally thought it at every single level that my incremental effort to gain an, uh, a kind of unit follower was going to go down. And it literally never has. Like the only thing that works is putting out good content. When I, when I don't put out like really high quality content, I don't grow all that much. I mean, certainly more than like when I was at, you know, five or 10,000, but not more than when I was at a hundred thousand, I would say like from a hundred thousand to here, it's literally just a function of the effort and energy that I put into creating that is driving my growth. That's both inspiring and upsetting. It's super daunting. I mean, I mean, it's like, 
it's also, it's empowering and daunting, right? Like the daunting side is, oh my God, I just have to keep doing it. Like if I want to keep growing, which I'm just growth oriented, I like growing, you know, there's no reason for me to grow on Twitter anymore. I have a, I have a big following. Like if it stays the same, I can create a ton of value for the people that follow me. And I don't need to like care about it. I just like seeing the number go up. I mean, I just like growth. And it's daunting to know that you just have to keep putting in effort in order to grow it. The flip side of it is it's empowering because I literally know, I mean, I can tell you what I have to do to get from here to a million. I just like, I can look at it and tell you how long it's going to take me roughly if I do a certain amount of things. And so that, I mean, to me, that's empowering. What do those variables look like in your mind from here to a million? Consistency of quality content creation. Like if I put out one thing a week, I can pretty consistently say that I'll grow 20,000-ish a month like right around there. And so I can, you know, back into how long that's going to take me. Like just looking at the data, I can tell you that. If I put out more than that, if I put out, you know, two-ish things a week, two and a half, three things a week that are really good and high quality, which means incremental effort, I can grow it like up to, you know, 50,000 a month probably. And that would, you know, really accelerate it. But it would also be a lot more time that I would have to be putting into it. And so I need to weigh that against like the other things I have going on, you know, such as raising a child and, you know, a newsletter and a podcast and a book, you know, like all of those other things. And so trying to find the balance and like figuring out what levers to pull is really the game to me. When we come back, we talk about how Sahil thinks about how frequently he publishes on different platforms and his next steps for growth. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, welcome back. Something I've been paying close attention to with creators on this show is how they think about pacing and frequency in their work. Every creator I talk to seems to have some sort of consistent cadence for publishing, whether that's weekly, daily, or even multiple times per day in the case of somebody like Justin Welsh. So I asked Sahil how he thinks about pacing and how frequently he publishes on different platforms. Yeah, I mean, Justin is an absolute tactician, man. I find him really impressive because because of that discipline that he has. And he, I mean, he has just developed a playbook that he follows to a T. And, you know, he knows exactly how he's going to run his business, how he's going to drive people to it. Like that whole system is set up. And he shares that system with people, which I think is really awesome. I'm not really like that because I'm, again, more like inspiration driven when I'm writing about things. And when you see me post something, it's because it's something that I was thinking about. It's not because I have it planned on a calendar, like I said. I'm just on this sort of the other end of the spectrum. I'm probably not as far on the other end of the spectrum as like a Tim Urban who is like entirely driven around you know, what his inspiration is. I'm definitely, you know, I have like, I'm going to write one thing per week. You know, you're going to see that from me. Other than that, beyond that one thing per week, it's like, was I inspired to say something? Yes or no. I'm trying to be more disciplined on LinkedIn. I've been, I've learned that from Justin because I'm trying to build up a, a, a presence and a platform there. And so like posting once a day when you're trying to do that is really helpful. And so I'm trying to do that. But on Twitter, you know, which has always been my main platform, it's really just like, am I inspired to go write something? Was there something interesting that I encountered during the day that made me think of something? I mean, I carry around a little um, pocket notebook all day and just write stuff in it. And like, was there something interesting that I picked up during the day that I want to kind of clarify and write about the next day? 
you mentioned you're, you're growth oriented and you also talked about how, you know, you started talking about finance and investing and then you saw there was going to be a cap there. So you expanded into your other interests and that allowed you to grow even further. Are there any challenges that come from now incorporating a bunch of different disciplines or niches almost going to a broader audience? You know, the biggest challenge that comes with scale is you just get more, you know, you capture more negativity and there's just people yelling at you at all times. Like social media at scale just becomes quite toxic. You know, I just get more mean messages, more mean, uh, you know, mentions, et cetera. And so you can't really use Twitter at the scale that I'm at anymore. Like it's no Mm. longer a platform that I can use to really meaningfully engage with people, which it really Mm. was up until, I mean, really up until almost 500,000, probably like up 250, 300, I was still able to use it. And all of a sudden now, I have generally found that at this scale, suddenly I look like a public figure to people um, where just like any politician, they just feel like it's fun to just take a shot and mm-hmm. say something, me, you know, whatever. Like they don't think I'm looking at it or that I'm seeing it because you just assume the person's like, you know, got someone managing their thing or whatever. And that's because most of these people don't know me and haven't seen that I've come up recently and, you know, my whole story, et cetera. And so that like that piece of it isn't particularly fun. Like it's just, um, you know, a level of toxicity to it. I generally think that like, I'm just going to, what you're going to get from me on Twitter and on these platforms is that I'm going to write and share about things I care about and like. If you don't like those things and you're not interested in them or you don't find value in them, you're welcome to unfollow me. And I have no issues with people unfollow. Like there's, I, I don't care. And if I'm writing about things that I enjoy, my guess is there's other people that care about those things. Like, I mean, I've been posting more fitness content, health and fitness stuff. There's no rhyme or reason to that. I'm not trying to like grow into a health and fitness audience or something. I just really care about this stuff. I think about it every day. And my bet is that a lot of people would benefit from it. And, you know, does that grow my fault? I don't, I don't really know. I don't have like data to look at and say that that grew it and this didn't. And people are unfollowing me for pictures of my family that I'm posting or content I'm posting. I will say that posting more visual stuff is part of a strategy. You know, sharing more pictures on Twitter is definitely part of like, trying to develop a deeper affinity and connection with my audience and like putting my face out there more and family and sharing more about, you know, those things that mean a lot to me. That's definitely part of something that I'm trying to do to develop a deeper connection than just written words. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's really just sharing things that I care about. Sounds like a dream, man. I mean, I think, I think anyone listening to this would be like, man, I wish I could just create about the stuff that I care about and have hundreds of thousands of people care about it also, but you didn't start there. And it's it's hard for anybody just to start with like, this is what I care about and try to reach the same level of scale. Like you started more focused and then you expanded out. You know, is there anything you want to add to that or any nuance you want to put on that? So, I mean, I think it's a fair characterization. One thing I've heard you talk about just a little bit is how you think about timely content versus evergreen content. Strug- struggle that I have with social media generally is so much of it, you're almost encouraged to have like this ephemeral this is interesting for like a 24 hour cycle and then it's gone type of thing. And there's a frustration that can come with that as a creative person who wants your work to be a little bit more enduring. So how do you think about the evergreen content that you create or even the stuff that isn't evergreen? How do you prevent yourself from being like, why did I spend 10 minutes putting this together? I lean evergreen on everything. The reason is just the genesis of when I started. It was like, okay, I'm going to create things that help people explain that you can always go back and reference. Like I was looking at, you know, what Ben Thompson did with his newsletter and, you know, blog and, you know, being able to link back to other things that you've written about in the past and sort of build like, a, you know, build people up um, within one ecosystem. So evergreen was always, um, you know, 80 plus percent of what I was doing. But timely content, if you do a good job on it, 
pops the most and honestly like generates the most follower growth as well. I mean, my biggest P, my biggest follower growth has come from a thread that I wrote on Swift, the banking thing that happened around when when Russia invaded Ukraine, something around Evergrande, which was this, you know, financial collapse, something around supply chain, which was a huge economic story. So those like timely things because everyone's looking for that on Twitter and they see it and they're like, "Oh my god, I got to share this with other people because it's valuable." So I always try to make room for that, but that's like day of, oh, this grabbed me. It's a super interesting story. I got to write something and, you know, and have an angle across. But the vast majority of what I've done is evergreen. And I just want people to be able to read something I wrote a year from now and still find it relevant. It might be worse than the content I'm putting out today because I'm just a better writer, but it'll still be out there in high quality. Evergreen also, it should be said, allows you to repurpose and update content. You know, I will regularly take things that I wrote six, nine, 12 months ago refresh them, add new perspectives, new layers to it, and reshare them. That was a fascinating exchange that you had with Nathan Barry on his podcast. You've been on there twice. Both are great episodes. People watching this should watch and listen to both of them. But a really interesting exchange you guys had was this idea that if you do a really good job of creating evergreen content and you capture that even on Twitter, you could theoretically at some point just use that existing stuff that you've created and remix it, twist on it. And it's not that you have to create completely new things from scratch all the time. That was a few months ago that you guys at least released that episode. Has your change as your thinking evolved or changed on that at all? No, I mean I think that that's like especially if you're a busy person and you have other things going on, I think that's one of the smartest things you can do. You know, the reality is you're putting something out when you have a thousand followers and then in a few months you have 15,000. There's a lot of people that didn't see that thing that you wrote when you had a thousand. And so if it was really high quality and good, you should want to share that again if it was evergreen and it wasn't just like a news story and resurface it for a lot more people so that they can see it and benefit from it. And honestly, it has an increased likelihood of going viral. And when I when I help people with content, you know, I have a um, an agency business that I kind of help startups and some founders and, and individuals with growing their presence. That's one of the things that I often like help them create as a system around that. Like go drum up some of your old content that was really good when you had no followers and figure out how we can repurpose that, refresh it, you know, make it a little more hooky um, so that it grabs people and then repost it. I had just gone through Justin Welsh's content OS course. So I had like this new spot in my notion that was like his Twitter system. And then I went Mm -hmm. and made a database and an automation with Zapier that everything I tweet, Zapier grabs it and throws it into a database. And then I can Mm. mark a checkbox of high performer or dead. And if it's dead, it goes away. If it's a high performer, I actually have a gallery view. So I can just like go through and see and pull from it. Because yeah, my my struggle was like, oh, how do I even dredge that up? Am I going through my own timeline for months? Or do I just like in the moment, week to week, kind of try to capture the stuff and mark it as a high performer or not? That makes me really self-conscious about how basic I am with all this stuff. <laughs> I don't have any like Zapier, you know, connections, apps, like central OS. Like I, my, um, my whole system, I feel like is really rudimentary compared to you guys. Well, you're spending time writing really high quality content and I'm spending time pixel pushing and making automations in Zapier. So I don't know about <laughs> that. Winning. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> You know, now you're a new dad. How has that impacted your life as a creator? How has that changed how you manage your time? A lot. I mean, I um, it's my number one priority is, you know, I want to be the best dad I can be. And that's filled my life with a whole lot of happiness and fulfillment and joy. It's also a lot of time, as you can imagine. So I, I have generally found that what is happening is my work hours are 
extremely focused. Like my focus level is insane when I'm doing something because I know I really want to get it done. Like when I'm going to sit down and write a newsletter or sit down and write a piece, I'm so dialed in on it because I want to be able to get it done during that block of time so that I can go spend, spend time with my son um, or go help my wife or do whatever it is. So it has made me like ultra focused on both ends of the spectrum, I would say. I just don't feel like I have like as much fluff time in my schedule as I might have. And that can be tiring in its own ways. But the good thing about kids is that they love being outside and going for walks. And so like my, you know, I write a lot about how much walks are a part of my routine and, and important to my creative process. And I can do those with my son. And so, you know, I'll put him in the chest pack and go out for a walk. And that's kind of when I am thinking about things and he falls asleep immediately as soon as we get outside. And so that's, <laughs> you know, he, he's a part of my creative process now in that way. Well, as you're looking forward to the, the rest of this year, you know, what's on your mind or what are your priorities for continuing this, this growth as a creator? Where do you go from here? I'm going to continue to, you know, put out content across the channels that you've seen from me. I am going to continue to expand into more video and, you know, things that kind of have my face around it. And you will hear and get updates on on a book from me in the not too distant future as well, which I'm really excited about. It's probably what I'm most excited about in terms of, you know, a new thing. That's awesome. How do you think about your your time as it relates to writing a book? I'm always fascinated for to hear how authors bucket that into their lives. Yeah, it's going to be a lot. I mean, it's also why it's important to get a nice, uh, a nice advance up front so that you can kind of prioritize it against against other things that might be on your schedule. I mean, I have a bunch of business things that I do that I don't really publicize. You know, I have have a few businesses that I'm you know an owner or co owner of, and you know have my venture fund and a few other things. And so, figuring out how to kind of outsource and and delegate and kind of build leverage into those is going to be really important when I take this on. For a creator with such a big following, Sawhill really makes it seem possible that creators like you and I can achieve similar results. With a combination of hard work, consistency, and good content, I think you'd be surprised at the results you can generate for yourself. If you want to find out more about Sawhill, you can go to sawhillbloom.com or search Sawhill Bloom on Twitter or LinkedIn. Links to all of his profiles are in the show notes. Thanks to Connor Conaboy for editing this episode. Thank you to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing the audio. Thank you to Brian Skill for creating our music and Emily Klaus for creating our artwork. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you really want to say thank you, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.